there is the effect of what I call meritocracy instead of meritocracy. You know, a lot of people say, I don't believe in quotas because I believe in meritocracy, meaning I just believe that we should promote or bring on boards just the most qualified people. And people say, that's why I don't believe in this. But let's be very clear. Meritocracy is a wonderful theory. It is not reality because that means we have no biases. If I can evaluate every single candidate without any biases coming into my evaluation, I'm a meritocracy. But we're not robots and we do have biases. So there isn't such thing. And we tend to have this affinity bias meritocracy. I want to bring Nadia on because she reminds me of myself at that age. You know, you're younger than me. And I think you could do great on the board. And I don't realize I have this bias. And so I'm not looking at Luca, who is actually a more qualified candidate. Hi. My name is Nadia Nagamutu, business psychologist, coach, speaker, and founder of Avenir Consulting, which creates organizational growth and success via inclusion and diversity. We've been discussing the benefits that diversity brings to a company's bottom line performance for decades with more and more evidence. But there are so many questions organizations still have about how to achieve it. How do you create a culture where people feel valued for their uniqueness and the qualities they bring? I believe it's crucial to the future success and sustainability of every organisation that they find the answer to this question to make sure that each employee is not only supported but also appreciated. With this podcast, I aim to get some of the key challenges to creating inclusive workplaces out in the open and start uncovering the solutions to embracing a culture that cares for everyone. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most inspiring people in different countries and across industries who are pushing the boundaries on inclusion and diversity in the workplace, from topics such as parenting in the workplace, ethnicity, age, gender, mental health, and all things inclusion. I want to create a movement to change society through sharing life experiences and creating more empathy and connection. Why care? I believe that once we have organisations and societies that accept and value everyone for who they are, we become healthier, happier and better in our roles, both inside and outside work. Hello and welcome to episode 23 of the YCAB podcast. My name is Nadia Nagamutu and I am your host. In this episode, I speak to the inspiring Kristen Anderson, Vice Chair of European Women on Boards. Kristen is a qualified chemical engineer and has spent most of her career in STEM-related R&D roles, living in different regions of the world, working for big corporates such as Kraft, Coca-Cola and Barilla. Her final role before retiring from Barilla was as their Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer, leading a series of programmes and initiatives that achieved whole organisation momentum for DEI. Kristen talks about the power of employee resource groups and offers advice on how to engage staff so that these networks are employee-led. She also explains how to gain buy-in and allyship from majority group members. Kristen discusses the important work European women on boards are doing to overcome the deep systemic gender biases and support organisations to achieve the new EU directive for all organisations to have 40% women at board level. This episode is packed with advice. Enjoy. Kristen, lovely to have you on the show. I'm so excited to speak to you. I know we've only had one previous conversation, but just from that conversation, I know we're going to have a really cool chat today. Thank you for inviting me, Nadia. Yeah, we really connected at the last time we talked. And thank you for the invitation to join you today to talk about topics that are very near and dear to me. As women in particular, and I know that with your role with the European Women on Boards, we're going to have a really cool conversation around where we're at 
um, when it comes to gender parity, gender equity. But before we do all of that, I just kind of want to give a sense of this amazing career path that you've been on, because I feel like it's really worth sharing your career to date and also how you ended up in diversity, equity and inclusion, because everyone's got a story when it comes to their path. And I'd really love to hear yours. Definitely. I think it's kind of, as you said, everyone's got a different career path. And mine, I think, was pretty atypical because I'm a chemical engineer by training. And so when I graduated as my master's degree, and your audience can tell from the accent I'm American, I'm living here in Italy, in Parma, Italy, because the last company I worked for is Barilla, an Italian food company based here in Parma. So that's I ended in this beautiful location. But you know, as I graduated and I decided at what industry I wanted to go into, I really liked the food industry. And so I moved to the food industry because I liked the idea of being able to eat what you produce. And and then there's always the consumer part and a lot of fun. And I worked in the US for many years. Then I worked in Australia for three years running R&D for the big multinational craft and also then in Munich for five years. And then if you follow the food industry, there was some you know mergers, acquisitions, and they wanted the people to come back to the US. And I had decided many years ago not to go back to work in the US. I liked the overseas experience. And so I went to China and worked for Coca-Cola in Shanghai for three years. And then I guess was found by a recruiter to come here in Parma to one run part of the research group for Barilla. So relocated to Parma. So that's the chemical engineering STEM part of my experience. But then um, Barilla started working on uh, more in diversity and inclusion in the company uh, with a very strong effort sponsored by Chairman Guido Barilla and by the CEO Claudio Polzani. And they had a, formed a DNI board with internal members of the company. And I was asked to be on the board, probably because I lived a few places uh, around the world. And after some years, I left R&D. I was asked by the CEO to take over as chief diversity and inclusion officer. So I did that role for the last five years of my career. So that's how I kind of maybe you say fell into DEI. But I think, again, there's no traditional career path for DEI. And I think everyone that works in it has a passion for more inclusion and more diversity in the organizations. And one year ago, I kind of retired from Barilla and moved to European Women on Boards, which is a nonprofit, Brussels based, but pan European that the sole objective is what it says, get more women in decision-making positions around Europe. So I'm the vice chair of European Women on Boards now, which is a fantastic organization. And I left Barilla because the chief diversity officer role is rotating and it was time for me to pass the baton to someone else, which I think is smart, you know, because you have new eyes after a certain number of years. And after five years, it was time for someone else to be in the role. And so I wanted to continue in the DNI space. And that's how I'm now with European Women on Boards. What a story. I mean, What I love about that is it does show that anyone can work in this space as long as you have the passion, the energy, the desire to make a difference in the diversity, equity and inclusion space. Because I think there are a lot of people out there who have started down a career path which might be completely different, not even within HR or the space of working with people, and they're wanting to move into diversity, equity and inclusion. I meet quite a few people, actually, who just have a real passion for this and they want to do more. What was it about you that they noticed at Barilla and said, actually, Kristen would be great for this DEI role? Bringing our differences to work and basically trying to kind of challenge the status quo in whatever job you're doing. I mean, again, I wasn't working in DNI. I was running part of R&D. But I was very vocal that there's some things that we could do better, try to influence people to look at things from a different perspective, try to talk a little bit about cultural differences in food, for example. And, you know, it's not going to happen immediately because most companies have kind of their traditional style. They have a culture that's been formed over years and they bring people new that in that they want new ideas, but sometimes it's not always going to be quick 
to make that change. If there's a, you know, a role in an ERG, an employee resource group, very successful in, in, in culture change and opening up culture for valuing differences, I would suggest to be involved in those, to join one of them, to even want to be on uh, leading a, some kind of project on them, you know, doing these things where you're working in the community inside your organization. And then you'll be noticed if you have a passion for that. A lot of ERG leaders then take on roles of diversity officer or diversity manager. So I think DEI is not an HR function. It's an everyone function. You don't need to be sitting in HR. And sometimes when you're not in HR, that's a great way to embed the DEI in a business. So I had the privilege of working directly for the CEO. It was designed in Brilla to be functional that w- reported to the CEO. So leadership commitment and viewing it as a business priority was not as difficult as when sometimes there's a perception that HR manages all DEI, which is not true. It's, it's everyone should manage DEI. Everyone should work on inclusion. So get involved in some way. And, you know, if you have the passion, you'll be noticed. And I think that, that can also be great for your curriculum. You know, your CV can say, I was an ERG leader. Those steps make a difference. You don't need to go from whatever you're doing to a chief diversity officer. It's a big jump, maybe. So take the other steps. Or if you don't have ERGs in your company, Work with HR and say, maybe we should form them. I have an idea to form them. Or in your community, volunteer to help underprivileged groups, underrepresented groups in your community, because that also goes on your CV as something you're passionate about and that you've shown that you've made a, a difference in some way. Yeah. Thank you for that insight. In Barilla, the role that you then got in diversity, equity, and inclusion, that was the first of its kind, that first sort of role that Barilla offered anyone to work in the diversity, equity, inclusion space. So is that right? How do you approach such a big... No, there's no work to date that's been done actively with a proper person in place to work on diversity, equity, inclusion. Where did you start? Yeah, no, that's a good question. And it seems like a big challenge when you're starting from you haven't done work on DEI before. As a word of background, I mean, again, I have to give a lot of credit to the chairman and the CEO for forming DEI, reporting to the CEO and creating a chief diversity officer role, creating a DNI board with external advisors. Now, I wasn't the first chief diversity officer. Talita Erickson did a fantastic job as the very first person forming the basis for the work. And then I took over, we called it season two. So season one was Talita. She's a Brazilian American and, and she led the first season, which was really forming the key steps, you know, making the ground fertile for change, developing a DEI survey for all employees, doing training for everyone, basically talking about what is DEI. You have to do the, the business case so people understand what this initiative is. Explain that DEI is not something that's just about gender equality or women. It's about it valuing all differences, really explaining the wider context. Then I took over after three years, focusing on how to engage employees at all levels, how to continue our KPIs because we developed KPIs in season one. Because, you know, again, you only achieve what you measure. So how do we continue that evolution of tracking and accountability, but also engaging employees and employee resource groups? So that was a big initiative starting from just a few employees of Burley in America. 20 starting in 2015 to over 1,500, I think, uh, employees and employee resource groups in Brill around the world. So it's an evolution. All these steps for change, it's not one thing that solves DEI. And there's not one step that makes culture change. It's a journey. And you need to map it out. You need to get a lot of people involved. You know, you need to make sure that you're tracking it and set, you know, set goals. Just like any other, if it's a business priority and it should be, manage it like a business project. Yeah. And so at the time, Brilla didn't have any employee research resource networks or groups no so because this is something that a lot of organizations are asking me like where do we start how do we get 
Because I think certain clients I've worked with, they've had the idea, they can see that an employee resource network or group would be valuable, but they've started it and there wasn't enough momentum. And what are the key factors that contribute to a successful employee resource group being set up and being able to drive change? It's a key point because I've also been working with some companies asking, you know, what were the best practices and again, sharing what worked and what didn't work, which, you know, that's the Barilla story. But in general, what I see and what other companies say is it has to be a bottoms up kind of grassroots type approach by employees. You cannot top down say we should have affinity groups or employee networks, whatever you want to call them. If you're starting work on DEI, it is not the first thing you do. You can't say, let's start working on DEI. Okay, uh, Nadia. Form an employee resource group. People, first of all, might go, what is DEI? Or maybe I know what DEI is, but I don't understand why we're working on it in my company. I'm a very diverse and inclusive person, but why is the company find it a priority? So there needs to be some visible leadership commitment from the top. Luckily, in Brilla, it was the CEO and the chairman, but others, senior leaders saying, we aren't inclusive enough. This is why we want to be more inclusive because it's good for business. Sometime on that so that people get the context that it's not an inclusive and diverse in the biggest, broadest sense of all differences. So people don't view this as just all about women or it's all about people with different abilities. Then once you have that kind of embedded and maybe getting also employee feedback on areas to focus on, that's always a good thing because everyone has a different opinion on what needs to be worked on for more inclusion. Getting even quick employee feedback and surveys really frames the basis of your strategy. So spend some time on that. doesn't mean it has to be five years, but spend some time on that. Then start seeding the idea of these groups, basically educating employees around the world on what they are and why they would be a benefit for your company. You need to set that foundation and it's going to take different amounts of time. Some cultures, maybe it's more common to form groups of employees that make change. And in some cultures and some geographies, it's completely new. And so you need to spend time telling employees why this is important and they could potentially form if they want. And they need to take the initiative. That's where it'll stick because if it becomes something that is a top-down, people just say, okay, that's just another business project. And you need to have the people that are passionate kind of come out of the organization saying, I'm putting my hand up. I want to form this group. I know what it is now and I want to form it. And then of course, you need to have your DNI committee or your chief diversity officer help them, sponsor them, have a governance. You know, they can't, you know, form just randomly. You need to have some way that they basically get approval, you know, that they have a business, kind of an action plan, a charter, and ultimately an executive sponsor. That's where the, another way the leaders in the organization can show their commitment is to be a sponsor of an ERG. And you'll see a lot of passion coming from the leaders talking about why they're sponsoring this ERG. Maybe they're sponsoring an ERG of different generations because they feel that there is a barrier between sharing knowledge in the organization. So you find those right executive sponsors. And that also is a way that embeds it because the executive sponsors have a lot of passion for their ERG, you know, and they will keep it going and inventor and sponsor them. Wow. There's a lot to do, basically. <laughs> I made it sound like it in two minutes that you can do this quickly. But, you know, again, culture change is anyone that works in this space is not a fast process. It's steps. What's nice is that you will see as it goes forward, people coming along and being passionate and starting to lead this. But to realize if it was an easy thing that, you know, you do, everyone does training and now we're much more inclusive, that doesn't happen. The training is important to make people understand in some way, training or communication, that DEI is important to the company or the organization. But after that, there's different steps that are beneficial and they can be done in different ways. But some of them, I think, have been proven to be quite successful in culture change. 
So, and what I love about what you've just said is that a number of times there you've said how important it is to explain to the whole organization the why. Why are we all of a sudden talking about this? Why is it important? Why should they engage in this discussion? I think that there is that tendency, unless it's framed correctly, for it to seem like a tick box. So there's the cynics in the organization because of various movements or it's the thing to do now. Diversity, equity, inclusion. Oh, right. Now we've appointed someone who's working on this and now they want to set up employee resource groups. So I've heard that in certain organizations. And I think what I love about what you said was that it was so clear that the initiative has to follow a lot of work beforehand in setting the organization up to be receptive, to be understanding of why this is important, not just for the organization, but for them as employees too. And Nadia, you're right, because again, we do things that are right for the organization, but also there's a big driver if you say it's right for you. If I can say, Nadia, you will be a more inclusive leader if you can do these things on inclusion and also take it to a personal level. I think that your point, you have to make the ground fertile for these for, for employee resource groups. You need to explain that diversity and inclusion, and I think I've said this already a couple of times, is not just about gender diversity. I was talking to one company who said, you know, we're really focusing on women and gender equality. It's a good initiative. But if the organization views DEI is just about women, you will have the reaction for the rest of the organization say, it has nothing to do with me. So one of the Gorilla's DEI board members said, Start off by defining DEI as all the aspects of diversity and explain that we're not going to be able to work on everything at the beginning. We're going to have to do them in steps. So we were going to be focused on this step first. But we believe that diversity is different family situations, sexual orientation, generations, abilities, cultural backgrounds, religion, and gender and life balance, work-life balance. That was also a very good suggestion by the board is don't define gender balance is just gender in your ERGs because then you will have basically a ERG of women. Talk about it's a balance of gender and work life and you get a lot of men. Men want work-life balance as well So because you need to have men as allies in working in all these areas. If you define it broadly, but then say our first initiatives will be this, then maybe you know people will understand that later on something else that they're passionate about will be a priority and they can work on that. But if you focus just on one aspect of diversity, the reaction you'll get mostly is that the people who are not in that diversity will feel like this is something that doesn't involve me at all. Yeah. And has the opposite impact of feeling exclusionary and that they don't belong and that they're not important, which I suppose brings the age old issue of certainly what well, I say age old as if it's been centuries, but certainly since we've been really focusing on diversity, equity, inclusion, and particularly with gender, this backlash so to speak, around well, men not feeling like there is anything in their organization for them anymore. It's definitely a common reaction that I see and that other chief diversity officers see that to have the group that feels they are not included saying, this is not about me. Where's my white Italian men, if I just say that, or white uh, American women ERG? Because th- so that's just two things I would suggest. You know that you're making some steps forward when you get the reaction, because it's a common reaction. And if you don't get it, it means people aren't even paying attention to the message about DEI. Okay, So you need to say that it's something I'm going to have to work through. 
But make sure, again, as I've said numerous times, define and it keeps reinforcing DEI is about everything. Inclusion about differences. You're maybe a white Italian man, but you're from the South of Italy and you aren't so included because, you know, there's all elements. Have you ever been excluded? How did it feel? So do these kind of exercises to get people to understand it's not just about women or different generations or, or people with disabilities. And then make sure that you define more broadly your ERGs and define them as also the type of diversity plus allies. When Barilla formed ERGs, it wasn't that we said, please, everyone with a disability, tell us and we'll form an ERG around you. That's not the way it works. It works because someone who's passionate about inclusion, of more inclusion of people with a disability want to form this ERG and maybe 100% of the people are allies first. So focus the role of the ally or someone with ERG for people with different with LGBTQ. People aren't going to say, yes, I'm a member of that community. I want to be a part of the ERG. You say there's, it's a non-disclosure. You know, you're an ally. The point is that you'll make a safe space where people can then be authentic and talk about their real self in work and what their life is like, but it won't happen right away. It becomes a safe space. And as the ERG gets bigger, People feel more and more comfortable within that space to say, yes, I actually have a mental health issue or I'm marrying my partner this weekend. I'm not going to go announce to the whole company, but in the ERG, I'm going to tell them after some time. So that's how the disclosure happens. Little by little, people feel comfortable sharing because they're in a safe space with people that are allies and not asking for people to disclose anything. That's where a big role for maybe the majority or the group that feels non-included can be included. You can play a role as an ally. Don't you think we have more inclusion of people of different generations. When you start defining diversity in the broader sense, usually you will find a lot of people passionate about one element. Maybe they have uh, experienced exclusion because they're a certain age or had a certain number of years at a company and they don't feel like they're really taken seriously or listened to. You can have an ERG about generations and you have a lot of people involved. So I think getting people engaged in one element is important. And that's where the wave starts coming. And as you say in America, the train leaves the station and can't go back because you have so many people involved that even you called it cynics, even if some cynics say, I think this is just another one of those tick the buck exercises. There's so many people involved in working on inclusion that it just can't stop. It's a wave that keeps going. Yeah, I hear that, that sort of momentum that's needed and how you can create that by getting people to really connect with the work that's being done because it's personal to them, that it means something to them. So is that the idea behind European Women on Boards, that you've created this safe space for women to come together who have a particular need that isn't necessarily being met by their organization or society more broadly. Could you explain a little bit more, I suppose, about the purpose? So it's of European Women on Boards is like specifically on gender, as you can tell from the name, it's European Women on Boards. But we have male ally members and we want more. Because if you really believe that better decision-making will come with gender diversity, everyone should get involved. We're not exclusive to women. We have men, we have individual memberships. So what we do is we provide training opportunities, networking opportunities for senior level women and men. But we focus on the senior level. What's the point of difference of European Women on Boards is that we're pan-European. And I say European in the broader sense. We have members from you know Turkey. We have members from the UK. It's not the European Union. We're a nonprofit that formed and we run ourselves with the volunteers. So if you want to join, you can join as an individual member, which gives you the access to all of webinars, uh, peer networking. Uh, we're doing local chapters of EWOB. So now people really want face-to-face way to meet each other. And then we have our development programs. As I mentioned, the C-level program, we are launching a board readiness program because we're different because we're focused on senior women. 
we focus on a specific area, which is women that are close to sea level or actively looking for board positions. And uh, yeah, again, and we connect women across Europe with different uh, functions, different backgrounds and career aspirations and give them the support and training to take on more board roles. And you saw that recently European Union has now approved the board directive. We want to play a role as a talent pool for these senior women. Our goal is to have a thousand women ready for C-suite and board positions. So the argument of, I can't find those women, they're not there in certain functions. Our goal is to be able to provide that talent pool of women for those board positions in the future. I think it's fantastic. And yes, the EU board directive, you know, so that's 40% is the directive, right? 40% on non-executive board as well as executive. Is that right? Yeah. And it's for publicly listed companies around Europe. Yeah. I'm just trying to think, are we in the 30s? Is it sort of, is that, we're sort of about 10% off achieving that now, roughly? Yeah, so you take an average, of course, you know, there's different progress in different countries and different companies are doing well. I mean, if you take a look at the countries that have made progress, because as you know, this was proposed more than 10 years ago and it passed some of the process of getting approved, but then it was blocked by some member states and it stayed basically blocked for 10 years. And in the meantime, countries that like France that passed their own law made regulation, made progress. Because again, if you don't put a metric in place and you don't track it, it's like a business project. People say, well, I don't believe in quotas. This isn't a quota. This is a metric. You know, you're not going to, for example, install a new multi-million dollar line of pasta and not have anything that you're measuring. So this is not about quotas. This is about making progress. And France made progress because they put the law in. And as you said, some countries are almost at 40 and most are below. And some have made zero progress, zero progress. Because when you say it's going to be voluntary, How much voluntary work do we do at companies? You have a project, you track it, it's a priority, and you see if you're making progress. I think that's the same way we should approach the big challenge of of diversity and gender diversity. It's a a business initiative and look at it that way. Yeah. So what's the distinction then in your mind between a quota and the metric? Why I like to use KPIs or metrics is that I think quota has a lot of negative baggage associated with the word. Because think about it, if you ask someone and say, oh, do you support quotas of percentage women on boards? Or they'll say, no, maybe no, because the view is that I'm just doing this to tick the box. So I'm going to go out on my small street in Parma here and say, hey, this woman, come join my board. And no woman, no senior level woman who's looking for a board position is advocating to have someone who's not qualified to be on a board. But again, if you believe gender diversity is actually a benefit for your company and for the countries and for the EU, then you should work on it like the project and we set goals. So our target is 40%, right? It should be 50-50, but okay, 40%. So then let's make progress. Let's find those women. Let's go to European Women on Boards or other organizations and say, I'm searching and I'm going to be very transparent about the other piece, transparent about my board level search. And I'm going to find a woman or a person of color or, you know, a person with different ability because that's all, you know, we're talking in general, diversity is good, but I might not have as many candidates as the white male. So it's going to be a little bit more difficult and I need to go and search in other places and I need to make sure that I look for a diverse candidature of, you know, possible board members. I'm a STEM woman. And a lot of times we say, well, I can't find women in STEM, but they're there. It's just as an R&D leader, if you had an opening, you probably get, you know, 50 white male candidates and you might have to look harder to get a male person of color as a candidate. But I believe that they're there and it just takes more time. You have to believe in the 
objective of having more diversity on your board and set a KPI and track that you're making progress. Totally understand that now and how certain words can be loaded because of how we've used them in the past and how it can turn people off and actually reframing it into actually this is important as a metric because if we don't have anything that we're trying to measure, we're never going to get there. So how have you found the achievements of the women who've gone through your C-suite program, for example, have they been sought after? Have they managed to get these big roles on boards? We hear feedback from the women that have gone through our programs and also the members who are women and men that our programs are beneficial to two things. To, I would call a bit the self-branding aspect. You know, we're not always so good about talking about our skills in a succinct way. Sometimes we're undervaluing them, or maybe there's the imposter syndrome, or you know, this board position says I need to have PL experience and I haven't run a, a country. Well, PL experience can be other things. And so we provide experts that come in and say, you know, actually with your CV, your experiences, this is how you can talk about yourself. We make women take videos of themselves, speaking about themselves, all these kind of things that are uncomfortable because we have to practice it. We have to be succinct in how we talk about our skills. And a board level CV is a different, your LinkedIn profile, if you're looking for a board position, is not your LinkedIn profile if you're looking for a senior executive position. So we bring in experts who help women and do this and also achieve their career aspirations and then network with other women and men across Europe because 80% of board positions are done via network. That also has to change because network can be very much an affinity bias. You know, if I have a board position, Nadia, and I know you, and you know, I have affinity bias for you, for something about you, then I offer it to you. It's not transparent. I'm bringing another woman on the board. So I'm not actually focusing on diversity because, you know, we all have these biases. And so, you know, more transparency in the posting of positions and more focus on bringing in diverse candidates and evaluating them will also move us ahead in achieving the KPI of 40% women on boards. Yeah. And you've touched there on there several of the some of the key barriers that I am assuming you see a lot in women, their ability to quite simply focus on what they're not so good at as opposed to what they are good at and what they can't do as well as other people and always that benchmark and the yeah. And I hear it a lot in the work that I do. What do you think are the deeper systemic gender issues that lead to those commonalities between women, that shared kind of often imposter syndrome or doubt in self, lack of self-confidence, wanting other people to spot their talent rather than stepping into it and saying, I can do this. Where does that come from? Well, I don't know if I'm exactly the qualified person to talk about the gender aspects of different cultures because we know that it's starting at a young age. I mean, to your point, Nadia, all the research shows that when women have 85 to 90% of the skills for an, of a more senior level job, you know, we will say we're not ready. When men have 40% of the skills, they'll say they're ready. Okay. That, that is not saying men aren't doing this well and women are. There's no good and bad here. It's a gender difference. And we have to be aware of it that we don't lean in so much. We think you're 15%. I don't know this. You know, I maybe I need to do some more work. I need to have a different role. And a lot of times partners or spouses or colleagues will say, no, you should apply, Nadia. You should apply. You have the skills. So we need to have that. We need to push ourselves. And at European Women on Boards, we try to also help with the, you know, the confidence building that you know that you're undervaluing your skills and you're thinking that you aren't ready for this, but you are. 
The second thing is if I ask, tell people, if you're a manager and you're managing a man and a woman, your male employee says, I'm ready for this promotion and your female employee says, I'm not, be aware of the gender difference and really eval- try to evaluate without some kind of biases, which is always very hard because we don't know our biases always and they come into play. And, you know, there's the effect of what I call meritocracy instead of meritocracy. You know, a lot of people say, you know, I don't believe in quotas because I believe in meritocracy, meaning I just believe that we should promote or bring on boards just the most qualified people. And people say, that's why I don't believe in this. But let's be very clear. Meritocracy is a wonderful theory. It is not reality because that means we have no biases. If I can evaluate every single candidate without any biases coming into my evaluation, I'm a meritocracy. But we're not robots and we do have biases. So there isn't such thing. And we tend to have this affinity bias meritocracy. I want to bring Nadia on because she reminds me of myself at that age. You know, you're younger than me. And I think you could do great on the board. And I don't realize I have this bias. And so I'm not looking at Luca, who is actually more qualified candidate. So I think that there was, that's another piece that comes into play. Oh my goodness. I love what you've just said there. I spend so long trying to bust the myth of meritocracy And you've nailed it in like a few seconds around how it just does not exist. And I love that concept, meritocracy, that affinity bias. You know, we're trying to mirror ourselves and what we think is the right person for the job. And as you said, Nadia, the the challenging part is not the fact that we have biases, which is challenging, of course, but the challenging part is that we don't, that's why they're called unconscious biases. I don't know why I have an affinity bias to you. You don't look like me. Of course, your audience can't see us, but you don't look like me. We don't have a similar background, but there's something in the conversation that we had that in my mind triggered something, remind me of myself. And in general, we like ourselves. So I see parts of you in me, and that's why I want to put you ahead and help you when I pay more attention to you. I mentor you. I actually sponsor you in the organization. And we very often don't know that we're doing it. That's why it's unconscious and it's even more challenging. Yes, thank you. And you've really spoken to some of the deeper systemic issues because, of course, if we have organizations where it's predominantly men in certain positions in the organization, it's an organization where power lies with that particular gender then of course, there will be some underlying biases that you'd be like, you know, you do remind me of it. In fact, Lord Sugar, I don't know if you watch The Apprentice or whether you can get it in Parma, Italy, but Lord Alan Sugar in the show in The Apprentice in the UK, he often says this, you know what, there's something about you, you remind me of me. And so I'm going to hang on to you for a little bit longer. And he's really overt about it. And each time I watch it, I'm like, did you just say that? I don't think that's okay. <laughs> and are you unconsciously saying or consciously are you biased? <laughs> because, you know, it's really interesting when you pay attention to the language. Let's say I'm uh, on a board and I'm recruiting a new board member and I'm interviewing candidates. And this is not just board. It could be executive. It could be anywhere. And I say, I think Nadia is a great fit for our board. What do we think of that word? That is not, that is a biased word because what's a fit? Is there some written criteria? This is a fit. So what I always tell organizations when I do a bit of this kind of work on bias, ask the analytical questions. What makes Nadia a fit? What did you see in her when you interviewed her? Why is she a fit to our board? Was there some examples that she provided? So try to get to logic because if you do it in in a soft way, because if if I say to someone, well, you know, you're biased, you like Nadia, they're going to go, I'm not biased because again, it's our whole life these biases have been formed. It didn't form in one day. So we like and we defend them and we don't want to be called biased. But you can challenge them in a soft way to get to some analytical 
you know, or the apprentice saying, instead of remind me of myself, what is it this person did that's so good? And challenge yourself and saying, would I recommend Nadia if Nadia was an Italian man? Would I still be thinking the same way? So you can also try to self-challenge or have a colleague challenge you, you know, and what do you think about Nadia, someone who thinks differently than you? Don't go to the person that's in your close circle because they'll say Nadia is great, just like uh, I would say Nadia is great, right? Yeah. One of the things that we do is work on really being aware of who are your go-to people, who are in your inside circle that you always turn to. And of course, we have this issue now with social media and the people that we follow and then the algorithms that then create this inflated perception of that everyone agrees with us because these algorithms, you know, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, they're so sophisticated now that, of course, if I follow people that bake cupcakes because I'm interested in baking a cupcake for my daughter's party, then I'll just get streams and streams of loads of cupcakes and different people posting their cupcakes. And so, of course, it's the similar thing when it comes to perspectives and views. If you follow or like people or engage with people, you're going to get similar views back. So it skews our perception, doesn't it, of different perspectives. Exactly, Nadia. And that's one of the ways you can try to be more inclusive and open up your circle is to be analytical about it. I think maybe I do surround myself with people that remind me of myself and I don't know why. But what I need to do is do an exercise. There's an inner circle exercise where you can go through and write on a piece of paper. The people that I spend most of the time with at work are similar to me, same background as me, same gender as I am, same culture, language. The people that I last uh, asked advice from, the colleague I asked advice, the person I gave a project to, and even you could do it in your social life. Who last time I invited someone to my house? And it's an interesting exercise, not just, oh, maybe my inner circle is a little more homogeneous and like me. It's also can say, well, I need to do something about that. So I don't, I'm not getting enough perspectives that are different. So I'm going to go reach out to a colleague who always disagrees with me at work and ask them their opinion. I'm going to have lunch with someone that is very different than me and consciously work on expanding your inner circle because we don't become more inclusive just by saying, I want to become more inclusive. I mean, it's got to be awareness and an interest to to change. I worked with one CEO and he did the inner circle exercise and he said, you know, I thought my inner circle was more diverse because there's people with different backgrounds. But I realized that they've been living in the same country as me for 25 years. So they actually became more like me. So they might have been different from a looking perspective, originally from, say, Korea. Um, so I thought they were very different, but actually they think very much like me because they have kind of maybe assimilated or taken on some of the same cultural elements that I have. So I'm not getting enough challenging people in my inner circle. I think it's a really eye-opening exercise, actually. And it brings it back to what we were talking about before in terms of metrics. If you're not measuring it, if you're not seeing it tangibly in a certain way, then it will just be, won't it? You won't notice the system unless you tangibly make the system clear and obvious. So in a similar way, we need to be doing that to ourselves and noticing. Yeah, it's a self-awareness is is key to more inclusion and is is also key to reducing biases, self-awareness. Yeah. And it's not self-flagellation. We don't have to say we're horrible because we have biases. Everyone does. But at the same time, we can't do the other one and say, it's fine. Everyone has them, so it's fine. That's the barrier to inclusion is these biases that we have. And so we need to be aware of them and really actively work on them. Yes. We're just coming towards the end of our conversation. It's gone really quickly. But I'd love to get your insight into, okay, the EU have given this board directive, right? What would you offer to organizations that are looking currently at their gender balance, senior levels and going, 
what like where do we start with this how do we tackle this what's the few things that they could do that you could offer to start making progress it's a good question. It's the right time to ask this question, not just because of the directive, but because it's, again, back to the business case. Diverse teams perform better. I need more diversity in all levels, and we focus on women at senior levels. I mean, I could say to companies, sponsor your woman to become a member of European Women on Board. It's not very expensive. They can have a network. They can help develop themselves. It's something that you're doing because many companies don't have a training for senior women. They have training for all women, but a lot of times senior women, they don't need that same training. So they need a different type of training. So we provide the training, the individual memberships. Also, corporations join us as sponsors where they, they become a sponsor of EWAB and then they have certain packages where women can take our programs or become members. Yeah, and we also do help companies in assessing their gender diversity. We have a gender diversity index that we publish every year. And we do help companies when they're starting in their journey or they want to do more work to increase their gender diversity at senior levels, they contact us and we have sessions that we talk with them and we give them some advice of best practices. So there's different ways. I'm not here to sell European women on boards, um, but it is a way to connect your senior women. And again, it's not about having your senior women that go to boards. I mean, this is about also C-level training and just connecting senior women across Europe in different organizations and different functions, which then can help them be better senior leaders and give them skills to be successful at more decision-making positions in your organization. I'm absolutely flying the flag for the European women on boards. I love what you're doing. I think it's so needed I love that you're bringing women together to talk and be overt about some of the barriers that they face and helping them and challenging themselves to overcome those barriers and knowing deep down that they can. To your point, we're also looking for many more male allies to join European Women on Boards because, again, the same type of of webinars which we had last night, how do you get a C-suite position relevant for men and women? We're not saying this is just a women's organization. Yes, our name says Women on Boards, but we had a lot of men joining our webinar yesterday uh, because, of course, men want C-suite positions as well. Men are looking for board positions. So we can't do this alone. This is not a women's group further women or to complain about men. It's, It's a group that believes gender equality and decision making is good for countries and companies and we look for men and women allies to join and work on this together well you've heard it here so anyone listening who's interested in learning more about the european women on boards anyone who's interested no matter your gender and thinking about c-suite or board level positions Kristen, how can people find you where can they learn more about european women on boards I would direct them to our website, which is easy, europeanwomenonboards.eu. <laughs> Look there because you'll see how to join as a member. You can see what our programs are about. You can see about our gender diversity index. You can find a lot of information there. If anyone in the audience would like to have a further conversation, has questions, contact me. You'll see my email on the website or you can go to my LinkedIn. So just Kristen Anderson, you can put in vice chair of EWAB and you'll see me. And I'm happy to have people connect and we can talk about it. And if they have questions or also feedback, suggestions. We're very open. We want to continue to grow, to reach more gender equality and to get your feedback on how to do that better. Thank you so much, Kristen. The link to everything that Kristen and I spoke about today is going to be available in the usual place, the show notes page, avenirconsultingservices.com under podcasts. Kristen, it has been such a pleasure. I could talk to you for ages. I've oh, loved this went by so quickly, Nadia. <laughs> <laughs> it's been fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing everything that you're doing and all those insights. Thank you very much for the invitation. It was a great pleasure and hope to talk with you again soon. 
That concludes episode 23 of the YCare podcast. I could have spoken to Kristen all day. We covered a huge amount in that episode from ERGs to executive sponsors, overcoming backlash and bias, and of course, the brilliant work of European women on boards. Do let Kristen and I know what you thought of today's show. You can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter with the handle at Nadia Nagamutu. As always, I really appreciate your support of this podcast through leaving a review on whatever platform you're listening and spreading the word by sharing it with friends and family. Huge thanks to Mauro Kenji for editing this podcast and to John Rice for supporting with the show notes and getting it out there on social media.